You're listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast, now on Google Play. With Rachel Adams, Managing Editor. Brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas. Welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast. My name is Rachel Adams, the Managing Editor of Natural Products Insider. Today I have with me Rodney Benjamin, Director of Research and Development and Technical Support at Bergstrom Nutrition, supplier of methyl sulfonyl methane ingredient OptiMSM. Uh, hi, Rodney, how are you? I'm doing fine, Rachel. Thanks. I'm really excited to have Rodney on the podcast today because we are talking about DSHEA, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. So uh, 2019 marks the 25th anniversary of DSHEA, uh, and this year, to celebrate that anniversary, Insider is putting on an entire series of podcasts just looking at DSHEA. Uh, One of our objectives with this podcast series was to look specifically at the impact of DSHEA throughout the supply chain. Um, And so I'm excited to have Rodney here because we're getting the supplier's perspective, um, the perspective of Bergstrom Nutrition. So DSHEA, I'm going to just do a little more background here before we get into the questions. Um, DSHEA which I'm sure many in our audience know, and I'm sure, Rodney, you know as well. I know you know as well. Um, DSHEA put into place the regulations that govern dietary supplements today, um, including good manufacturing practices and the regulatory requirements around structure function claims. I'm excited to get this supplier's uh, perspective because a lot of times when we think about DSHEA and we talk about DSHEA, we're we're looking more at that the brand owner perspective but that doesn't mean that DeShay doesn't have impact in other areas of the industry, including the supplier and ingredient developer side. So we're going to just jump into it and get a little more insight on that. So Rodney, uh, can you talk about how DeShay affects your business as an ingredient supplier? Well, Rachel, you know, even though DeShay doesn't require GMP compliance for ingredient manufacturers, people don't think it has much impact on us. But actually, our customers are required by DSHEA to be GMP compliant. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they push that on up the supply chain, meaning that if we really want to do business with any of the big significant suppliers within the industry, Mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we have the proper quality management systems in place to ensure the quality and consistency of our ingredient, OptiMSM, right? Mm -hmm. So Bergstrom has always believed that GMP compliance is the right thing to do. I mean, we actually were one of the first domestic ingredient manufacturers that were certified by the NNFA that clear back in 2000 when they first launched their GMP certification program. And currently, um, we have both ISO 9001-2015 uh, and FSSC-22000 certifications. And the FSSC-22000 standard meets the new FISMA requirements. It's also recognized by the Global Food Safety Initiative, right? So it has right. a little broader recognition and acceptance than just like a, a domestic GMP certification program because this is something that is actually recognized throughout the world uh, as being compliant with Global Food Safety Initiative. And right. MSM is also grass, right? So allowing mm-hmm. that to be formulated in the standard food and beverages, um, so we also have a little bit more requirements uh, or to meet uh, under the food safety part of it. So right. everything in the Food Safety Modernization Act uh, really uh, is applicable to us. 
And so ultimately, uh, what you're saying is, is just because GMPs are not necessarily require a requirement of, of ingredient suppliers um, is an important part of quality when it comes to your customers and also therefore your business to make sure that you're meeting the needs of your customers. Oh, sure. Because, I mean, if we don't have, uh, you know, the certifications and, and actually operate under GMP, um, it's pretty hard to do business with the big players because um, I, it's just, you know, within the industry, they're uh, kind of policing their own. It's, they're <laughs> right. pushing that on up the supply chain and saying, if you don't meet these kind of uh, quality requirements and whatnot. Um, so it's much easier if we're already certified right. because that shows that not only do we just say we're compliant, we actually have documentation and go through regular auditing um, to make sure and actually certify that we are compliant with these kind of requirements. Right, and I, I think that's so great, that point that you just mentioned, um, that your customers, you know, are taking these regulations seriously, and so they're essentially, like you said, pushing that up the supply chain. I think that's a great example and perspective when we're talking about Deshaies and how these regulations impact the industry. And I also love how we're talking about GMPs because this can be um, a source of, I don't, I don't know that I want to say a source of contention, but like you said, um, because it's not necessarily required for uh, for ingredient suppliers, for example, to follow those GMPs, but because it is required for brand owners, that's an important distinction, an important component of that relationship there. Um, and you've talked a little bit about how Bergstrom, uh, Bergstrom has um, addressed this with, with how you've been proactive in terms of your own quality management and the systems you have in place. Um, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. I'm just curious if there's any other challenges you've seen in this area of GMPs or if there's any other measures you've had to take um, to make sure that, that any challenges would be um, addressed. Not really. I mean, because of the fact that, like I said, we've got on this right from the start, you know, mm -hmm. uh, recognize that, you know, a, a good quality management system is essential. Um, right. And I mean, we feel that it was just the right thing to do. Right. Um, and uh, to be totally honest, we are a single ingredient manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. We have a one-legged stool, um, for better or for worse, uh, that's just the way it is. And we can't really um, afford to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. Right. And the best way to do that is, you know, to have uh, regular audits and make sure um, you don't want to become myopic because you don't do only one thing. Right. So bringing in an independent third-party auditing company helps make sure that we don't become uh, blind because we're doing the same thing day after day after day. You know, they come in, they have a uh, nice, fresh uh, look at things. Um, they're mm -hmm. unfamiliar with our processes, and so they're looking at it and from a whole new set of eyes. And right. for continuous improvement, that's really key. And continuous improvement is really part of our, you know, uh, like ISO 9001, mm -hmm. 2015. Uh, that's a key point of that, which we're also the ISO, you know, we have that certification. So it right. just really helps with that continuous improvement and 
it, like I said, that's where the companies always wanted to be. So it wasn't hard on us when the regulations came down and said mm-hmm. you have to do this. We were already kind of ahead of the head of the curve there. Right. That's fantastic. So I want to talk a little bit about structure function claims. Have the regulations around structure function claims, which require adequate substantiation um, for claims that companies are making about dietary supplement products and the ingredients in those products. Um, so as an ingredient supplier with an ingredient that is is well researched um, and has a variety of benefits, um, has the regu- have the regulations around structure function claims affected the development? You know, Bergstrom's always believed it's important, you know, as an ingredient manufacturer to invest in research to support the ingredient. And of course, you know, first of all, as required under uh, the NDI or new dietary ingredient or grass regulations, you know, proper safety studies must be done. And, you know, we started Mm -hmm. there. But then, of course, proper clinical efficacy studies need to be done to support, you know, the ingredient. And this can start out with rather simple efficacy studies, you know, looking at a certain indication and measured, uh, you know, should be done with a double-blind placebo-controlled studies, which, you know, we kind of started there. Mm-hmm. But that that's all fine and good, but really, um, for longevity in this market, I think also more rigorous mechanistic studies are necessary. Um, you know, I don't want to say negative things about our industry because all in all, I think we do, you know, the industry does a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. But I think we also all have to kind of admit sometimes that a lot of supplements are marketed on extremely weak science. And a lot of those ingredients that come out, I, I kind of refer to as fat ingredients that, you know, mm-hmm. it's something new and everybody's looking for the new, hottest, greatest thing. And they go out there and it shows up in a number of product lines. but Truly, if you don't have the good science to support it, consumers fail to experience promised benefits that are made through the marketing, mm-hmm. and then you're not going to see the repeat sales. And a lot of these ingredients kind of fade from the market over a period of a few years, right? Right. And that is why I say that you know you really for longevity, you need to demonstrate uh, efficacy for the structure function claims. Right. But really for longevity you also need to dive a little bit deeper and get into the mechanisms or potential mechanisms right right so i mean that's kind of what we've tried to do the efficacy studies are key mm-hmm. i think in maintaining the uh longevity of an ingredient and when you start looking at the uh you know, you're, we're constantly being looked at the R&D teams and the companies that are doing the final products really want to see the science that substantiates the claims that they are hoping to put on their um, products. Right. Right. So what I'm, I mean, it sounds like to me almost this, uh, you know, the requirements for structure function claims are almost just like a starting point. Um, when you're talking about longevity, it's, it looks like really understanding not just what these ingredients do, but also how they work and why can ultimately contribute I, to that. I think it, it is, and, and it's, it's difficult because, you know, from the standpoint of practitioners, which it was interesting, I uh, attended the Botanical Science Conference uh, in Oxford at the University of Mississippi um, in April, and I got to hear from some practitioners, and they were saying, well, the structure function claims are not that helpful for us because they're not specific enough. Right? Mm. It's, 
So it's, you know, and it's like, well, gee, using this joint health ingredient for treating arthritis, not, not wink, wink, but you can't use a dietary <laughs> supplement, right? So they were saying if right. we come up with something, and and I do have to admit that uh, National Health Products Directorate in Canada does, a, I think, a little more clearer of a job because it can actually talk a little bit more about a medicinal product, right? But right. on the other hand, when you look at dietary supplements as a whole, it's a very broad category. I mean, you have right. minerals, you have... Um, I mean, and then of course you get into the botanicals and the botanical extracts, and, and I mean it's a very complicated, broad mixture of ingredients. The structure function claims is a great way, I, I mean, to do it in general, and I don't know how else you would be able to do it. You know, it, it's it, it's a complicated question to say. Well, how can we get more descriptive? Right. And still have it address this broad, broad um, category of ingredients. Right. It's it's really, it's kind of challenging um, to think about, you know, because these regulations have been in place for so long now, it's kind of challenging to think about what would a different alternative and or better alternative be. And that's actually a fantastic segue into my next and final question, which is um, about changing Dishe. If is there something you would change about Deche if you could, and what would it be, and why? Well, I would, if I was to change any, I am really reluctant to say we should change Deche and mm-hmm. rewrite because, you know, if there was um, some recent, rather recent developments uh, that came about, and this was by a different. Um, section of FDA, and rightly so. I mean, this is under CEDAR, the Center for Disease Evaluation or Drug Evaluation Research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was an issue uh, with the compounding uh, pharmacy, and there was additional legislation that was brought in called the Drug Quality and Security Act. And... What happened was, I mean, so this was something that happened back in, uh, where 720 patients in 23 states were being treated, and the products, uh, it was a compounding sterile drug, and, you know, several people died. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, out of that, companies were fine, people went to jail, um, and all of that, but what happened was instead of just finding ways of getting at the heart of the problem, which was a disregard and non-compliance on GMPs, there was other things that happened and they actually ended up removing a number of products from the compounding pharmacies formulary. Mm. And I would hate to see something like that happen because we're trying to make Dishay better, right? Right. And you get into that, sometimes it becomes so over-reactionary that you end up losing more than you gain. I think right. it would be really a key thing for to help Dishay. The laws mm-hmm. are there. They're not necessarily, um, and it, no fault to FDA, really, because 
they're limited on what Congress gives them to work with as far as their budgetary, but they have some right. budgetary constraints. What we mm-hmm. need is better enforcement of the laws that are already there in Deshaies. Right. Now, that could be through better funding or more efficient use, maybe bringing in third-party auditors uh, and allowing them to carry more of the authority and somehow be tied into the regulatory scheme um, that just puts more feet on the ground, basically, um, for the oversight that is already there and defined by Deshaies. Right. Right. I mean, you you mentioned a couple of things that I think are just so important in this conversation. Uh, first, what you mentioned, you know, not doing more harm than good. Really, you know, the objective and the goal is to help people lead healthier lives, right, to get these solutions into people, obviously safe solutions um, that are effective. Um, we definitely don't want to affect to impact that negatively. And I really don't think you would have I don't think you would have anyone. Um, coming against, you know, anyone who would rival the idea that FDA um, is not able to enforce at the level that is really needed. So excellent perspective. Thank you so much, Rodney. I appreciate you being on the podcast today, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us on Deshay. You bet. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the health and nutrition industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud account. This episode has been brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas.